welcome to the All Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care Early Career Research Podcast. The focus of our forum is to provide members with opportunities to access peer and mentor support, develop links with senior researchers, and participate in capacity building workshops and share knowledge across disciplines. If you would like to learn more about the work we do, or if any of our listeners would like to become a member of the ECRF, check eligibility and subscribe free at www.professionalpalliativehub.com forward slash research forward slash ECRF. We welcome your thoughts and questions. Please tweet or direct questions to at AIIHPC underscore ECRF. Today's podcast will present a personal experience of a daughter's experience of a parent receiving palliative care. We are honoured now to be joined by Dr. Marisha Hennessy, a postdoctoral researcher with the Pregnancy Loss Research Group and Infant Centre at University College Cork. Marisha is a nutritionist, um, health promotion practitioner and population health and health services researcher. Welcome to the ECRF podcast, Marisha. Thanks so much for having me on, Stacey. Um, firstly, on behalf of the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care, I offer our condolences following the death of your dad, Tom. Can you tell me a bit about your dad, um, firstly, and just what it was like for you when you first got the news that your dad had Parkinson's, and I suppose specifically the last three years of his life as he deteriorated? Yeah, um, thanks, Stacey. So my dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's when he was in his early 60s. So um, I suppose he died when he was 83, so he lived with it for quite um, a long period of time. And really, it didn't affect his life um, for many of those years. Like, you would never know that he had Parkinson's apart from a tremor that he had in his hands. Um, So I suppose in terms of when he got the diagnosis at the time, it was maybe a little bit of a shock, but it wasn't too much of an impact on his life, really, I suppose, in general. It was really over the last, I suppose, 10 years of his life where he started to deteriorate. And I suppose over the course of the entire diagnosis, like he was managed very well. It took a while to get his medication and things like that sorted. But he had a really brilliant neurologist and they found the right balance. So um, in terms of kind of his physicality and um, cognitive ability and things like that, you know, it was very well managed. I suppose in the three years kind of preceding his death, it just really started to take his toll and he needed um, full-time care. So he was at home all of that time. And my mom, I suppose, went from wife to full-time carer at that stage. Like he had lots of support in terms of home care assistance coming in during the day. And he went to our local daycare centre as well. So all of those supports um, were really brilliant. Leading up to his death, um, then that that was the thing that really came as a shock. Even though we had kind of been watching him deteriorate, like he was still functioning at home. I suppose it all started to happen in kind of mid-July of 2019. So there was one weekend and my dad, he just hadn't been feeling well, but it didn't really seem like anything. Um, on the Sunday, myself and my husband were looking after him for the day because my mother got finally a break where she could um, go away. He was a bit concerned about leaving him because he was a bit unwell, but we said, no, go, you kind of deserve the break or whatever. And he just was, he just wasn't himself and he wasn't really eating that day. On the Tuesday then, he was due to go into our local hospital, um, community hospital for respite care for a couple of days. So he went in and he just really wasn't responsive when he was in there. They were a little bit concerned. So he went to the A&E in the local hospital that night because they wanted to get him in and get him checked out. And she sat us both down. And I just really remember her saying the words, Tom is very sick. He's dying. 
Yeah. Sorry to get upset. No, you're but okay, Marisha. Take your time. Such a shock. Yeah. We just didn't expect it. Um, and I suppose for us then, it all seemed very, it was imminent that it would happen. So we were kind of living on the edge for what turned out to be two and a half weeks. The time in the hospital was quite difficult because he was in a room for six people. Dad was dying. The family were all around. Friends were calling in because we thought it could be any minute. Yeah. It was difficult for us as a family, but difficult for other people in the room as well who were trying to get on with their own lives and looking after their loved ones. The staff in the hospital were incredible. They were um, kind of doing their best to make sure Dad was looked after. He had all he needed. They couldn't get him a kind of a separate room on his own. I suppose after we got the news, the palliative um, care nurse came in and she was just incredible. She was just so lovely. Um, and she kind of explained to us what was happening, what was going to happen. And I suppose she was the one who really kind of led the whole thing about trying to get bed home. Okay. Um, on the Wednesday night, Thursday night. Um, and on the Friday, we got the news that he would be able to go home and the ambulance kind of came at lunchtime. And I suppose the fear was that he wouldn't make it home in the ambulance mm-hmm. because he was so sick. It was really important to us that he was brought home because dad himself always wanted to die at home. He never wanted to go into a nursing home. But I suppose just before that episode, when he went into the hospital, we really thought he'd have to go into a nursing home full time. Because it was just, even though we had home help coming in the morning and evenings, it was really impossible for my mum to look after him on, on her own. Like with Parkinson's and his stiffness, and he was such a big man, and there's quite an age gap between my parents as well. So it was a really physically demanding job for her as well as kind of him as well. So it was just amazing, I suppose, to get him home and kind of the help that we had from the palliative care nurse in the hospital organising the palliative care at home, so linking in with the South Tipperary Hospice Association, linking with the public health nurse, the GP and things like that. So it was all managed really well um, and it was just, yeah, it was amazing. And I suppose to kind of preface all of that with the fact that we were lucky, we had the facility to look after dad at home. So they had made some changes to the house, like he had a hospital bed. So the health professionals weren't concerned about him going home. They knew that we were well set up to do that. And lots of people, we were quite privileged. Lots of people don't have those facilities. Um, okay. And we're grateful for that. That's good. Yeah, you kind of answered my next question. I was going to ask you about your, a brief insight into your experience of your dad receiving palliative care and what effect, if any, did it have on your dad? So initially it was thankfully down to the, the hospice nurse that she got home and supports were put in place to support you at home. Um, yeah. Was there anything else kind of symptom-wise or... Um, do you know, helping your dad during his death um, and his dying? Um, Not particularly. I think dad was always such an easy patient. um, And I suppose he kind of died as he lived in ways like we had been prepped for all the things that could potentially happen and kind of been shown how to administer morphine and, you know, all of those kind of things. But he really didn't need it. I think for us, the biggest thing was it had been quite chaotic dealing with the health services for some of the years kind of preceding his death and making sure that he had kind of access to the kind of respite care, medical care, things that he needed, dealing with health professionals in the hospital and you bring him in and you could tell the story kind of three different times. Whereas just when the hospice care kicked in, 
they just did everything. You knew what to expect. They were all talking to each other. So the minute, say, the public health nurse came in the door, she was like, oh, I was speaking to the night nurse or I was speaking to the GP. So you didn't have to kind of tell your story over and over again. And I think that was um, just really amazing. I'm really glad to hear that she had a good experience. Um, yeah, and I think just kind of being given the supplies, leaving the hospital and then every day yeah. the public health nurse or whoever would kind of make sure that we had all that we needed. So that was really great. Um, and I think as well what really helped at home was when the night nurse came in. So we didn't have her for the first two nights, but we did for the rest. And I suppose kind of it was that fear going to bed at night that you wanted to be with them in case anything happened during the night but I suppose they really gave that reassurance and you were kind of happy that if that did happen that they would alert you and yeah. I suppose that was my one fear was kind of I'd wake up every morning and I was staying in the room that was just above dad's room and I was I would open my eyes and go oh my god I wonder is he dead this morning so that was kind of that was the hard bit I suppose but you knew that he was really being well looked after that's good. Um, it was amazing. I think probably what was difficult was just kind of the duration yeah. that it was. It was kind of two and a half weeks in total. It felt so much longer than that. While you kind of accept death as a natural process, it was very hard not to intervene. And I suppose it was very difficult. So my sisters and my brother would have children. And I suppose some my nephew in particular couldn't get his head around the fact, why aren't they giving him something to eat, you know? Kind of negotiating that and I suppose the support of the care staff as well was really good. Yeah and Rita you found the kind of the length of time challenging would that be because you you weren't led to expect that your dad would last the two and a half weeks do you think it would have been different had you been prepared? Yeah and I think even the health professionals themselves felt like he was an anomaly um, okay. in the system so when we were told he was dying we kind of expected it would be that day Right. And every day after that, we expected it and kind of the GP was calling. And I suppose this was one of the issues for dad as well, was that his own GP got sick and had to stop practice. So he had lots of lo locums. So dad was seeing a different GP all the time. Okay. Just kind of before he died, he had gotten into a new GP practice. Um, so the GP didn't know him, right. but he would come every day. And then he eventually started going, I'm only coming every second day because this man is going nowhere. You've got great genes. You know, he, I can't believe he's still here. So determined. I don't think anyone could have um, expected it. I think he was having too much fun at home as well and too much crack. You know, like it was a really nice time because his three sisters, who absolutely adore my dad, got to spend every day with him. All the family were around. His friends were calling. Dad loved to sing. Um and he had a friend who he used to go to daycare with um, during the day. And he used to come up in the evenings and he'd have a sing song and things like that. And like, Dad, you couldn't hear him, but you could see him out the words. Yeah. And it was just really special. Yeah. So he was just locking up the attention, Marisa. He was, yeah. And that was him. He was a total social being. He loved people and he loved being active and things like that. So, Bless. yeah, I think he did it on purpose, really. He was great yeah. himself. <laughs> and as you said, your dad lived with his illness. Um quite a long time and then he passed away and all this was during your PhD and a PhD is challenging enough without such a significant bereavement Marita can I ask what coping strategies did you draw upon when you do you know when your dad deteriorated and then eventually died that's a really tough one um for me and I suppose for me the PhD was the best of times and it was the worst of times even yeah. before dad got sick and that he died I was on the most amazing PhD program funded by the Health Research Board on the SPHERE program. We 
brilliant supervisors, Professor Molly Byrne and Dr. Caroline Heary um, in the School of Psychology in NUI Galway. I had so many amazing opportunities, but I suppose I just struggled with PhD, particularly in second year and third year. Because even though, you know, you have the best support and you're in a really good group, it's still very much your PhD and a very individual thing. And I think I question my ability so much. I struggled a lot with that. Um, and I worked really hard. And I think I often felt guilty that I'm not spending enough time with my family. But I suppose I made sure that, like, I mightn't have gotten to see my dad as much as I wanted, but I saw him probably at least once a week. And the time that I was with him, I relished it and I cherished it and I made sure that you know, it meant something to both of us. Um, and I suppose my husband and my dad, they get on famously. And so that was really kind of helpful as well, that part of it. Um, I think kind of coping strategies for me, I suppose during the time when he was dying, I found that really difficult in terms of the volume of people coming into the house. So yeah, there were lots of people in terms of his care, but lots of family around, lots of friends and things like that. And I just struggled with kind of wanting to be with him all the time but the place was so busy and kind of making sure he was still comfortable so what I kind of did was you know in the mornings the very early morning I go down and just me and my sisters and my mother would be there with him and making the most of that time and making sure that you know we had the music on that dad liked and chatting away to him and things like that and kind of then checking on him during bits of the day or whatever just going off reading going for a walk things like that and then spending time with him again at night um and kind of, I suppose, accepting that other people had needs as well um, and that I just needed to maybe relax a little bit. But I suppose in terms of the PhD itself, it was probably, I was probably two months from my supposed submission date uh, at that time. So it was kind of a very kind of angsty period and all that. But like my supervisors and the PhD program were just brilliant. I stopped it immediately. I got to take time out. They supported me through all of that. You know, I never really had to ask. It was kind of, it was just offered. The forms were sent to me. So my supervisors were very familiar with, this is what's available. This is what should happen. And I guess like my funders were brilliant as well in allowing me that time. And I suppose the privilege that lots of PhD students don't have in terms of the funding support and just the administrative support that they provided as well. Um, that was just amazing and just really appreciated and just kind of asked me what I wanted and, you know, weren't kind of contacting me then all the time. They just worked kind of to what my needs were. And that was just really good. You know, I didn't feel any pressure or things like that. And Probably the breakaway from the PhD at that point as well was just really good. And I could just kind of be with my family and my dad and things like that as well. Yeah. God, yeah. Sound like really good supports. Is there yeah. any advice that you'd like to give someone who's lost their parent or a loved one during their PhD journey or even as a nearly career researcher? On the SPEAR program, like some of my colleagues in other years would have lost kind of parents throughout it as well. Um, and I think it's just... It's really, it's such an individual thing. Do whatever works for you. Um, ask for what supports that you need. I was lucky I didn't have to fight for that. Um, it was there. You know, some people mightn't have as kind of fortunate, being as, as fortunate a position or things like that. Um, but I suppose it's to kind of take the time and to be able to kind of put it all in context. Yeah. Um, sometimes I think like the PhD can kind of seem like it's the be all and the end all and you're so kind of, wrapped up in it um you know and I really wanted to finish 
but then in the grand scheme of things like my supervisor were like sure so what if it's a couple of months (laughs) you know yeah I think kind of that reassurance as well um is just really valuable yeah and you know what I got that from you what I would get from what you were saying there is just spend the quality time with the loved one yeah and I just said the PhD will be there and yeah um this podcast may be listened to by supervisors or you know of PhD students or early career researchers what advice would you give them in supporting their student or supporting their early career researcher who has just had a bereavement it's kind of having systems in place or being familiar with how things work within your university so I suppose there's kind of the personal level um you know of the kind of support that they can provide but also kind of that more formal level you know and kind of managing things around you know if you are taking time out how you manage your stipend your fees navigating kind of university processes like that and then I think it's just about kind of making contact with your students seeing how they are and what they're their needs are what they want from you maybe they don't want any contact with you or maybe they'd like you to check in every now and again to see how you're doing or whatever what was really lovely for me was so we're we're based in um south tipperary i was in college in galway and through the sphere program we had people kind of in all across the country primarily based in dublin or whatever but my supervisors and lots of people from the different institutions came to the funeral so in terms of the removal and even the day after and i just did not expect it and it was just so lovely um but I think it really gave me so much comfort at the time and like it wasn't something that was sad because dad had such a good life he had such a good death and it really felt like a celebration and I suppose we have a farm at home and down through the years we had lots of people working from us and just it was like kind of this is your life in our house the night of his removal because you had people that you hadn't seen in maybe 30 40 years kind of coming up and just kind of celebrating dad's life and he loved to tell stories and just to hear other people talk about him like that it was just it was so lovely and so kind of amazing you know yeah and you really can't underestimate that um the power of that community support can't you not yeah oh no it's incredible yeah yeah and how has the death of your dad um impacted you or your research marita uh, that's another tough question. Yeah, sorry, I'm really firing them <laughs> at you today, Marisa. <laughs> oh, gosh. As I said, I kind of struggled with finding time for family and friends during the PhD. Um, so when I did spend time with them, I tried to make a count. And I suppose yeah. now that I'm in the postdoc, I'm trying to be better at that as well, even though it is a bit of a struggle um, sometimes. So I try to make more time doing things that I enjoy with people that I like spending time with. I don't know if it's impacted on my research as such, um, even though, so my postdoc at the moment is working with Professor Keelan O'Donoghue in the Pregnancy Loss Research Group, and we're evaluating services for men and women who experience recurrent miscarriage. And I suppose just a lot of the things that are coming up, kind of issues around continuity of care, care coordination, the importance of individualised care and support, come up again and again and it just seems that they're so important whatever the issue is yeah. in relation to health and health services and how we deliver them yeah. um so I think it's just kind of reinforced I think that for me and the importance of that yeah it's kind of like seeing how palliative care works yeah. and for us it was so amazing and I'm not sure so that, that's a system that was under pressure then, but they delivered amazing service. I'm not sure what it was like in different parts of the country then or even what it's like now, but 
even I often think kind of what could we learn from that model of care that could be applied to more acute services and things like that as well. And that's such a researcher's mind, Marita. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, uh, what is the run up to Christmas like for you and your family since the death of your dad, Tom? Yeah, so it's kind of weird. And it was kind of weird last year as well, because it would have been the first Christmas. Of course. And and I, I felt quite fine about it. Okay. which kind of seemed to me kind of like, God, you should be really upset. Um, you know, that kind of way. But then um, as you said, Marita, you were celebrating your dad's life. Not yeah. Wrong with that either. At Christmas, we went to my sister's house and my mum was there and things like that. And we had a little candle with his picture in the room. So it felt like he was there. Um, yeah. It's particularly hard, I suppose, on my mother. Um, like I said, you know, she went from wife to carer to widow Um, so it's been difficult transition for her and I suppose especially around kind of big occasions like that and I suppose I'm particularly conscious as well like of COVID and what that means um, for her now so I appreciate that that's difficult I suppose on Christmas day as well I kind of made it a tradition so when I was younger we had a woman who looked after us and her husband and they were like our second mother and father but he died of a brain tumour and man it's probably about 20 years ago but I always make sure if I'm around that I I visit him on Christmas day so last year I went to see him and my dad and another really close friend of mine who died in December last year so I think that kind of gave me comfort and I could go and I could chat to them you know and things like that as well but I guess with my dad I kind of feel like that he's still a part of me and like every day like I think about him myself my husband will chat about him or refer to him it was my birthday kind of a couple of weeks ago and my and my husband got me a birthday cake from my dad's favorite bakery and you know things like that so it's kind of those memories and yeah that's kind of what I think back on and kind of appreciate rather than kind of the sadness of it yeah you've mentioned some lovely ways where you're basically continuing the bond you had with your dad so yeah yeah that's really good so tell me for those providing palliative care what advice would you give them be it supporting a patient or supporting family members at the time of um, death and dying of a loved one? Yeah, well, I suppose just to say kind of, I think they do an amazing job, like unbelievable, the support that we got. I was just looking at it during the week, so South Tiberi Hospice Movement, like their mission is to support patients and their families in their own home as far as possible and to deliver the highest level of individualised care, showing respect, compassion and dignity to all persons in our care. And I just think we got that in buckets. And I think if you can do that for anyone, I think you're doing absolutely amazing. Um, and I suppose this year they're celebrating their 30 kind of years in existence. And they've done so much for the community um, during that time. And we really wanted to keep dad at home. Um, and they enabled us to do that, which was just really special and really appreciated. That's good. And then as a researcher, and you're extremely research active, Marisa, I'm really impressed with your research outputs. But what advice would you give to an early career researcher engaged in research relating to palliative care? I guess for me, it's about putting the person at the centre. Yeah. So in terms of your research question and making it relevant to those who either receive care or who could receive care, as well as all those who are around them. And especially, so not just your research question, but also how you conduct your research and through kind of all that phase of, you know, the research cycle, even going through to kind of disseminating it and involving people in all of that. I suppose a big issue for me, no matter what topic it is, is how we actually bridge that gap 
between research and practice. Yeah. So for me, it's about researchers. You need to do the research, but also you need to get your research out into the world as well and try to make changes um, to policy and practice. So yeah, publish your papers, present at conferences and things like that, but kind of engage in other ways um, to try and get your message out there to the different people that need to hear it. Yeah. I guess one thing that really stood out for me um, just shortly before my dad went into hospital, we were just chatting one day. I was asking him something about what he wanted because I was always kind of like, we could do something. It was like, okay, well, what do you want to do? And he was like, I don't mind. I don't want to be a burden. And those words mm-hmm. broke me that day. Well, I think we need to do a lot more to support both the person and also those who are involved in their care so that no one ever has to feel like that. Yeah. And I think on that as well, I think there's a lot that we can do publicly to kind of challenge perceptions around conditions like Parkinson's and dementia yeah. because people often don't understand it. And I would often listen to my mother sometimes talk about people who called to the house and would say how disappointed they were with my dad that day that he couldn't engage in conversation or that he couldn't do certain things or how they weren't going to call as often because they found it hard to talk to him. And that just really saddened me um, that you just can't see the person um, outside of all of that. So I think we have lots of work um, to do in that regard. I suppose on that, I I like to think of myself as kind of an advocate for lots of different things. And I'm happy to rant about certain things. But I think even even now, I'm even more passionate about advocating for people's rights to health and care and including a good death in that. And I suppose a lot of the amazing care that we received when dad was dying and even before that was through charities. So the likes of South Prairie Hospice and also the Night Nurse Service from the Irish Cancer Society. And the services were stretched then and they're probably even more stretched now. And I don't think we should depend on charitable donations for these kind of supports. It should be an integral resource part of our health system. So I think each and every one of us has a kind of a duty to advocate for people in that regard to ensure that they have the right to life and also the right to a good death. I couldn't agree more. And they're really um, strong messages to kind of fight against that whole idea of burden of care and the health of cares. And you really hit me with, what you said about people visiting and being disappointed in your dad and just getting it out there, the importance of just being with someone and that yeah, the importance of just that quality of time, just sitting with that person and being with them. Yeah. Well, Marita, I would like to sincerely thank you for joining us today and sharing you and your family's experience of receiving palliative care during your dad's illness. Uh, this insight is really invaluable to us all. Um, and that's whether we are providing palliative care or addressing research needs in palliative care Um, And sharing such personal stories, incredibly brave. And I wish you and your family a very peaceful Christmas. While I know the loss of your dad is with you every day, I can imagine it must just be that bit harder around Christmas time when there's such a focus on spending time with family. So thank you. Thank you, Stacey. And again, listeners, we welcome your thoughts and questions. Please tweet or direct questions to at AIIHPC underscore ECRF. From all of us at the ECRF, thank you for listening. If any of our listeners would like to share their experience in palliative care or have been an early career researcher or attending a palliative care event, please contact at Parastase on Twitter. Thank you.